Hello and welcome to another MLEX podcast. I'm Sam Wilkin, Brussels News Editor, and today we're going to talk about Brexit. The ball is once again in the UK's court after EU leaders approved the withdrawal agreement on Sunday. Whether or not it gets through Parliament is anyone's guess, but let's say it does, what then? Here to give us the view from Brussels are Zosia Wanat and Mike Acton, who both swapped brunch for Brexit reporting on Sunday. Hello Zosia and Mike. Hi. Hey. Zosia, what did the EU leaders agree on Sunday exactly? Um, so the EU leaders had two key Brexit documents to endorse uh, during the Sunday uh, summit. One of them is the withdrawal agreement. So this is this big, more than 500 pages document that outlines the conditions of the divorce. So it basically outlines the provisions for the citizens' rights, the UK financial commitment, and it also ensures the transition period uh, until the end of the 2020 with this possibility of extension, which is very important for businesses. The other document is the political declaration on the future relations between the EU and the UK. And uh, this is much more of an aspirational document. So it's, it's, non, it's non-binding uh, and it somehow shows how the EU and the UK would like to see their relation in the future after the transition period ends. And what I understand from, from both of these documents is that it's something that everyone's been able to agree on, or at least all the national leaders have been able to agree on, but it's not quite... It doesn't quite cover everything, does it? There's the Irish border question, and there's also been some other controversies around fisheries, around Gibraltar. Where are these gaps now, and how were they papered over? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we have to remember that both these documents, they were um, agreed and they were negotiated by the European Commission. There was a special task force in the European Commission that negotiated directly with the UK. And member states, they were informed, they were uh, briefed by the negotiating team throughout the process, but they weren't negotiating. So they actually only saw both documents um, just before the summit. When I say just before the summit, I mean uh, the the withdrawal agreement, it was a bit more than a week, and the political declaration, it was around three days before the summit. So they didn't have much time to analyze the document well. Yeah, so the, I mean, my understanding of it is nobody really wanted to, to to block it. Nobody wanted to be the one of the 27 who was going to stick their hand up and say this isn't acceptable. Oh. But there are areas that they're not happy about and which may cause problems further along at the next stage of negotiations. Well, exactly. Um, so uh, none of the member states wanted to reopen the negotiations over the issues of their national interest. Uh, so they decided to put it in this yet again another uh, non-binding document, which is called the Statement to the Minutes. And yes, they, they put it all there. It's Again, it's non-binding. It's just... Um, the, a political statement, I would say, and they will keep all those issues in mind during negotiating the future agreement between the UK and the EU. These issues, as you mentioned, are about Gibraltar, uh, fisheries, the future of the Irish border and the lack of it on the on the on the island of Ireland, 
um, and also also some other member states wanted some extra insurance on the level playing field and environmental commitment. Okay, and I'd like to. That's what I'd like to talk about now. Really, I mean, there's we can speculate all we like about what's going to happen in the UK, but let's. I mean, the EU is is working on the assumption that it will be approved, and this is the deal that they're working with, and they're not going to renegotiate. So let's work with that same assumption. Let's put ourselves in in that mindset. Um, and talk about some of these specifics that are going to crop up over the next two, three, four years of negotiations, depending on the the transition. Let's start with level playing field, competition, environment, all that sort of thing. Mike, take us through that. Okay, so so what does level playing field mean? Well, it means currently the UK is tied into the body of EU competition law and the institutions which regulate that. Um, The concern for the EU is that in the future, the UK might be able to deviate from these uh, standards in competition policies, so for instance in the realm of state aid or taxation, uh, there is a concern that uh, an independent UK would be able to unfairly subsidise its own companies and therefore benefit from some advantages over European businesses. And that for EU leaders, clearly yesterday, is is a major priority in negotiations for them. At the moment they're safe because they have a transition period of two years which effectively ties the UK entirely into the EU's competition policy. After that, under the backstop arrangement, which is this insurance policy, which would basically kick in if there is no agreement ahead of the planned formal exit date, the UK would continue to be effectively monitored, particularly on state aid, by the EU. Now, what what the concern of the summit, uh, for instance, on the doorstep of the summit, Belgian Prime Minister Charles Michel raised this, is that when the UK comes to negotiate its final agreement with the EU... They want to be sure that the UK is effectively carrying out the same rigorous uh, policies on competition as the rest of the EU is. And the link there is made uh, with the broader trading relationship. So Macron and and Michel and uh, Dutch Prime Minister um, Mark Rutte have all mentioned this, that they want to make it clear to the UK that if it wants certain, one might say, privileged access to EU markets, then it would have to swallow these commitments. Now this of course deviates from what some in the UK political arena might want for a future UK because there is a lot of talk about independent trade policy, there's talk about the UK basically becoming Canada plus 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 and obviously countries like Canada and Japan which have trade deals with the EU do not have these sorts of formal commitments. So in a way it's storing up a major argument for further down the line because in the four, potentially four years that the UK remains in a, trans- a period of transition where it's effectively a member state, it will have to iron out these uh, issues with the EU in order to move on and avoid the backstop, which is obviously so maligned by uh, UK politicians. And how much of an issue is it? Because, I mean, if we look at competition policy, for example, the uh, CMA in the UK is actually one of the strongest enforcers in the EU at the, at the national level. So uh, at what stage would the, would the problem be? Where might the UK want to diverge um, where the EU wouldn't wouldn't want it to do so. Well, it's not clear the UK would want to diverge. I mean, very early in the process of the Brexit negotiations, there were talks about the UK becoming Singapore on Thames or or whatever the Chancellor said, and and deviating substantially from the EU on on these on these sorts of controls. I would emphasise it's not just competition; it's also, as Zosha said, it's environmental standards as well. Now there seems to be a, an agreement, particularly in the political declaration that the two sides will uh, try their best to align their competition policy. The major change for the UK will be that the CMA 
becomes effectively an independent regulator, and therefore there's a concern uh, which has effectively been solved by the provisions in the withdrawal agreement and the and, and the and the political declaration that the CMA will find itself carrying out parallel uh, investigations to the European Commission, which yeah. is sort of, of course the competition authority. This is something again that needs to be solved for later about the division of competencies as it stands in the withdrawal agreement and the backstop arrangement in the withdrawal agreement. Anything the CMA does will have to effectively be referred to EU competition authorities to sign off on it. So it may actually become a, a matter of principle rather than rather than real changes on the ground. I mean, the, the CMA, you know, unless Britain's politics changes direction quite drastically, it wouldn't necessarily want to deregulate from the mm. EU. But it's I think what might stick in people's throats in the UK is the principle that you have to you have to follow EU law where, whether you like it or not. Exactly. And, and the state aid uh, thing is particularly interesting because if you think about the sort of policies that are being floated by the Labour opposition in the UK, uh, things like the constraints on state aid have already been pointed to by people like Jeremy Corbyn uh, as un- unfair constraints on government economic policy. And so there's this trade-off between what you might call a more interventionist economic policy, which rightly or wrongly is uh, often on the left, the EU is blamed for limiting this. Uh, on the other side, what the EU is saying, which is, well, you have to align with these rules if you want the level of market access that you're asking for. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned the backstop here. That's obviously something that's been fiercely debated just to reach the withdrawal agreement. Um, so the backstop is is an arrangement. It's an insurance policy. Um, that will kick in if if no better deal is reached. The terms of that were um, were very difficult to agree between EU and the UK, particularly on the issue of the Irish border. So, Zosia, the, the can has been kicked down the road. What's the, the backstop is in place. Nobody wants the backstop to actually take effect. How are we going to resolve the Irish border question? Yes, what you've just said is actually very important. No one wants this solution that they've been debating for so, so long. No one wants it to actually actually take effect. Um, so now the negotiators on both sides, when they start to negotiate a future trade deal, they will have to come up with a new solution what to do to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. We've seen how long it took to come up with a solution which no one really wants to implement. We, we, we think that it will take much, much longer, probably beyond the transition period, to negotiate something that actually both sides would be happy about. And this topic was also something that was mentioned by EU leaders yesterday during the summit. Is it a political solution or, or is it this technological solution we keep hearing about? Are we relying on technology that doesn't yet exist in order to be able to reach an agreement? So, uh, yes, this issue is mentioned by the political declaration on the future relations, uh, but very vaguely, I have to say. Um, the, the declaration says that the problem of the, of the Irish border will be, uh, will, will be solved in a way by technological solutions. Uh, there are some scientists, some experts, trade experts or like border control experts who uh, have tried to outline different different solutions, different mechanisms, how that could work. But all of them say that technological solutions are not enough. They are not going to prevent all hard infrastructure on the border. So the truth is, we still don't know how 
this border, this frictionless border, could be organised. And as I understand it, under the terms of the withdrawal agreement, it requires mutual agreement that a solution has been found to that question. Yes. So even if the UK were to wade in and say, this is the wonderful solution which resolves the Irish border question, the EU would have to consent to that, um, yeah. which effectively gives them a veto on the UK leaving the backstop. Yeah, and that's that's been a well, that's been a problem in the UK um, since since the beginning, and that's what could still sink the um, the the limited deal we we have already in the UK. Um, let's talk about fisheries, the last sort of major area. Fisheries always seem to carry more weight than they ought to in political discussions. Mike, why is that? Absolutely. I mean, this if you go right back to the UK's accession to the European Community. Fisheries became a hot-button issue then, and it's left, if you go to Scottish fishing communities, you'll see that there's a betrayal, uh, a betrayal narrative, effectively, that's lasted for decades. When Ted Heath, the UK Prime Minister at the time, signed up to the European community, he agreed to what is called the relative stability quota. And basically, in, in layman's terms, it means the share of fish that each country gets. Now, every year, the EU member states get together to agree on the total catch, the TAC as they call it, which is the total amount of fish that can be caught every year in order for it to be sustainable. It rarely actually tallies with the expert recommendations, but but that's how it works. Now, with the UK leaving and becoming an independent coastal state, uh, it can effectively renegotiate these quotas because it's no longer tied into the common fisheries policy, which underpins this entire quota system. It also technically has full control over, well not full control because there are certain provisions in international law which stop you from saying nobody can enter your waters but it it has much more control over who has access to those waters. And I understand this is a a rare area where the UK perhaps has um, a stronger hand than the EU because the EU fishes more from UK waters than vice versa. In broad terms, yes. Uh, the the problem for the EU is that a huge, some of the largest catches in 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 the EU are uh, pelagic fish such as herring and mackerel, and these tend to be caught off the coast of Scotland. So, in effect, the UK has these fish in its waters and can lay a certain claim to them. The problem for the UK is that the EU leaders yesterday were very clear that this fishing agreement, which the UK thinks can be negotiated separately from aspects of the future relationship, they've been categorical that this is tied into things like market access. And so the problem for the UK is UK boats or UK licensed boats can catch as much fish as they like, but they still need to sell it. And there's no domestic market for fish such as herring. I mean, who eats kippers anymore? So the problem for them is the EU has already come out and said, Macron yesterday in his press conference after the, the summit said, effectively... If Theresa May wants a deep and comprehensive trade deal with all of these smart solutions and special rights or or whatever she wants, if she wants that, then she has to concede on fisheries. And the fishing community in in the UK is very vocal, but it's important to remember just how tiny a slice of the UK economy it accounts for. But it's a problem for the Conservative government because they've made it such a core promise of the Brexit campaign that they will restore control of UK waters and revitalise the UK fishing fleets. Michael Gove has got his own personal narrative about how his, I think his father's business went under because he claims because of European uh, common fisheries policy. Uh, so they've, they've made all these promises and now they're faced with this issue where if they want, it's a question of how badly they want control of 
fish, the likelihood is that the quotas will not change drastically. There are a whole bunch of factors which affect that, not, not the least environmental factors. You can't overfish. Uh, the way Norway does it is through bilateral arrangements with the EU. We won't just be negotiating with the EU. We'll also, I believe, be negotiating with Norway because we have uh, sort of yeah, our, our borders, uh, our, our sea borders intersect. So it's going to be fantastically complicated, and it's highly unlikely that the government will stake that much on fisheries. But it will be, as you've said, Sam, politically embarrassing for them because the fishing community is so vocal and because they have made this such a pillar of their Brexit campaign. And we may yet see more fishing boats up the Thames then, mm. as, as we had during the, the referendum campaign. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Um, Mike Anzosia, thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you. Bye. And I will just remind everyone listening to please subscribe to our podcasts on your preferred platform if you want to hear more from our reporters around the world. I'm Sam Wilkin, MREX's Brussels news editor. Bye for now.